mastery to me. So this morning, Sophie and I have been joined with Dr. Lowersdorf from the Auburn University History Department. And now we're gonna move on to a cool discussion about her job as a book review editor for North America for the Journal of Ethnohistory, which is published by Duke University Press and associated with the American Society for Ethnohistory. So how did you become a book review editor? And were there particular qualifications you had to meet or what was that process like to get you involved in that uh, role initially? Yeah, so so unfortunately this is not a particularly exciting story. <laughs> um, I, I had, uh, I was reached out to, I was asked to join the team and sort of to work alongside the, the, the editorial team. Um, it, was really, it was really an honor to be asked. Um, I happen to also have a background in editing, um, okay. so it's something I did before I went to graduate school. So, yeah. so it felt like a good fit. So I really quickly, you know, said yes and, and right. have really enjoyed. I've only been at it for about uh, four or five months now, but I've really enjoyed it so far. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What does your job as a book review editor entail? Yeah. So, so basically, like thinking of a history journal. So we have the journal editors, and they are the ones who are working with the authors of the journal articles. So you know, sort of like what your professors, right, would assign you in the classroom. These original pieces making a historical argument that are based on primary source research. I'm in charge of sort of the other side, the other half um, of, of a history journal. So I commission and edit the book reviews. So basically, I see what books have come out on topics that are relevant to our journal. Mm -hmm. um, and in a few minutes, I know we can talk more about sort of what topics are relevant to ethnohistory, uh, the journal. So I sort of figure out what are books that have come out recently, um, what are things that our readers would want to, you know, know more about to read reviews of. I find other historians who are also experts in those topics who are willing to write a review of the book. Um, and basically, right, I have them write a review. It's usually pretty short, like 600 words. Mm -hmm. And basically, I edit those, prepare them for publication in the journal. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's neat. And yeah, I know that we'll get in a couple minutes more more answers about how that uh, process is vital to what historians do. Okay. So, oh, here it is. Uh, why are writing and reading book reviews important tasks for historians? Yeah. So book reviews in history don't just summarize a book that has recently been released. So I know a lot of us probably wrote book reports, right? In right. school, that's not what a book review is. Um, book reviews certainly do have some summary in them, sort of explaining, right, what the book is doing. But they're also explaining, like, what is the book contributing to the field? So what is this book doing that's new, um, that's groundbreaking, that sort of changes our understandings? Book reviews will explain and assess a book's argument. So what is the author trying to prove? How are they trying to prove it? And do they do this effectively? And so historians read book reviews because we want to know whether or not a newly released book is going to be helpful for our research. Oh, um, yeah. So really, like, should we read this book ourselves cover right. to cover? Um, and we also read reviews after we read a book. So often I'll, you know, order a book that's new that just came out. I'll read it and I'll have my own sort of ideas and interpretations of mm -hmm. it. And I'll read book reviews that others have written. And so that sort of helped me feel like I'm part of a conversation oh, about yeah. that book, even if I haven't really talked to anyone in person about right. it yet. So that's sort of really what we, we use book reviews for. And yeah. they're such an important tool for our research and just for staying on top of all of this exciting new scholarship yeah. that's coming out right year after year. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. So for our listeners that might not be aware, what is ethnohistory? Yeah, so ethnohistory, um, which of course is, is the title of the journal uh, that, I, that I work with, is, is basically a term that emerged decades ago that, that really describes the doing the history of indigenous peoples, hmm. specifically peoples of the Americas, so okay. North and South America, although not exclusively so. And the term is really meant to apply to histories of people that 
did not themselves produce many archival documents. So either right. there are sort of no or very, very few archival documents giving their voices and perspectives. Mm-hmm. So what that means is ethno-historians often have to use creative means to sort of help them understand this history. So they are drawing on um, other sources as well as other disciplines, um, looking at archaeology, material culture, maps, oral histories, mythology, looking at landscapes, languages, a whole sort of other creative group of sources alongside these documents, which are, of course, what historians sort of traditionally use as the foundation of their research. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we do have archival documents, and I know we talked a little bit about this earlier in, in the Appalachian case, they're, of course, usually written by colonizers. So they're mm-hmm. written by Europeans and Americans who are coming with the intention of seizing land and taking political control. And beyond that, just have very little understanding of these indigenous societies. So we get documents that are often quite biased and often misrepresent uh, indigenous people in society, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. Mm. So really, we as as ethno-historians are trying to read especially closely for bias and to sort of pull out these threads of indigenous perspectives and cultures and experience in documents that were ultimately written by and for and about Europeans. Right, right. And that, I feel like, puts your uh, group of historians in such a unique position where the sources that you're using to tell your stories are in some cases, multiple times removed from the the subjects of your stories. So that's definitely really cool that there's a whole journal there to focus on getting other historians that have that similar process in conversation with one another. Okay, so let's see. Why is ethnohistory important? Yeah, so ethnohistorical methods really help us address, at least to some extent, this problem of a colonial archive, right, that's overwhelmingly privileging European and, frankly, usually European men's um, views and perspectives Mm. of the world. So, you know, we have the problem, right, not only were some historical actors not literate, there are some societies that just did not have a need for writing, right? They had other ways of recording the past, of sharing stories, sharing information. Um, And so, of course, we don't have that many materials from those societies. And beyond that, right, archives are political. Archives don't include everything that was ever written. There are choices being made in what is seen as important enough Hmm. to have been preserved, right? What is seen as historically meaningful. And so as we can imagine, especially in previous decades, non-white, non-men, non-elite people were more likely to have their perspectives left out. So Hmm. this, in some ways, these methods sort of help correct or or at least attempt to do some correction for that past. And I do want to say, though, Ethnohistory still, it's not perfect, right? Mm -hmm. It it is a difficult method, and it's something that we need to do thoughtfully and we need to do carefully, Um, and ideally in conversation with these indigenous descendant communities. Um, But really it does help us produce a more inclusive, a richer, a more complete story uh, of our early American past. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the advantages and challenges to doing work in ethnohistory? Yeah, so some of the advantages, um, I, I don't want to sound redundant of the above, right? But but really, it allows you to get at these histories of people whose voices are rarely preserved in, in archives that privilege some perspectives over others. Um, and the challenges of, of ethnohistory are, are really come down to these the limitations of the sources, right? Even with all the supplemental material with maps and archaeology and material culture and sometimes language, etc., 
you have these periods of time where you have almost no evidence to work with. Um, mm. In the case of my Appalachian Coast book, right. I actually have a period of 70 years where mm. I have literally not one document that even mentions the Appalachians. Wow. I have these Spaniards, Spanish entradas coming mm. in in sort of the 1520s, 1530s, 1540s. And then Spaniards aren't back in Appalachia until around 1610. Mm. Um, so again, the question is like, how do I use other materials to try to say something meaningful right. and explain why when we get to 1610, the Appalachians don't look exactly the same, right, as a yeah. society or a polity as they did in the 1540s. Right. So how do I sort of explain these changes yeah. when I don't actually have any documents? And of course, we as historians, documents are sort of what we do. <laughs> right. um, so, so there are these certain periods that require us to kind of rely even more heavily hmm. on these non-documentary sources um, yeah. that are fun and exciting to, to try to work through, but certainly can be frustrating and immensely challenging as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what's been the most unique or obscure source that you've seen used to try and get at these stories in the non-traditional um, written document way? Yeah, and so so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like obscure at all, um, okay. but, but I think one of the, the sort of up-and-coming sources is using language. Um, uh -huh. And using language to, like, get a sense of, like, what does this word, right, if we have a name for, like, a place or a group or something, what does this word actually say in that language, right? Oh. Like, what if we were to translate this and try to break down this word, like, what can we learn about these people's view of the world mm -hmm. through how they describe things in their language, oh. right? Yeah. Um, and so I... Unfortunately, that is something that I've had limited opportunities to do right. because we have one document in Appalachia. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. it is unfortunately a document that is very much about um, the Bible and Christianity, oh. which means that a lot of the terms being used, right, are sort of not necessarily saying that that much, right, right about right. these sort of uh, longstanding Appalachian yeah. values. But for... Um, there's some great work being done with, with the Tamukwas, one of the Appalachian neighbors in Florida, mm -hmm. um, by a historian uh, working alongside a linguist. And so oh. they're bringing sort of their interdisciplinary skills to try to learn more about the Tamuqua worldview, right, yeah. by reconstructing this this language that, that no one has spoken, mm. right, in, in hundreds of years, um, but that these friars actually preserved, right, in trying to, like, translate the Bible, to translate yeah. catechisms. So mm. we're able to sort of use these, these very overtly um, Christian sources right. to actually tell us a lot about how Tamuquan people saw mm. their world. Wow. Very interesting. How did you get involved with the Society for Ethnohistory? Yeah, so... I, I have only really wonderful things to say about, about this society. I went there, I think, as a third-year graduate student. Mm -hmm. I will admit, I the paper I shared I thought was great at the time, and now I sort of laugh when I read it, right? <laughs> like, it was very un underdeveloped. Yeah. Um, it had a lot of work that needed to be done, but folks were so welcoming, right? And they sort of saw this early graduate student paper that didn't quite get it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they were really supportive and they gave me so much feedback and ideas for moving forward. And I really just um, found sort of a home there, right? Yeah. And I kept coming back and luckily my work did get significantly better Ooh. as I learned more about my topic. Yeah. Um, and, and now, right, I frequently present there. I am the book review editor. Right. So um, it's it's been a, a sort of long, a long developing relationship and I, I'm very proud to be, be involved in this society. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to, oh yeah, you go ahead. We're going to go to an ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me. We're here in our, la in our final ses session s section with our trivia questions. 
So for our first question, when was the ethno history beginning to be used in the United States? Excellent. I, I, one of my grad classes, we read about this. So oh. thank you to my professor from many years ago. Yeah. So um, ethno history really, really took off in like the 1940s and especially the 1950s. So in 1946, I believe, the federal government established what's called the Indian Claims Commission. And basically this is this sort of system where tribes and nations can bring their complaints that the U.S. Um, has violated treaties, has not paid the money they were owed, um, didn't compensate them for lost land, et cetera. And basically ethno historians were scholars that were hired to sort of prove these claims, to sort of show them in the documents. And it really evolved from there, right, um, yeah. not from not beyond this sort of practical um, application to more of this academic field. Right. Um, right. So thank you to that professor who, yeah. who, who had us sit and talk about this for three hours several, right. many, many years ago now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely that would, that would ensure that you got the answer, you know, right there in your head. Yes, okay, perfect. And that's exactly the same information that we found. Okay, uh, for our second question, what was the name of the woman who fought in the American Revolutionary War disguised as a man? Yes, one of my students wrote a paper on her recently. Ah. Um, Deborah Sampson yeah. was her name. Yeah. Um, and I can't, I can't remember. I think her name was Robert something is what is what oh. she sort of, I don't remember what last name she had as her, her fake name. Um, yeah. But I, if I'm remembering correctly, she got away with it for over a year hmm. um, and then was discharged, right? When I think she got ill or injured and it was discovered that that she uh, was, was female, is female. Um, and so Deborah, my understanding, actually ended up petitioning for a pension after the oh, war yeah. and the government gave it to her. Right. And I believe Paul Revere actually was one of the people who sort of wrote in her favor, oh, um, huh. who sort of supported her pension application. So yeah. I, 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 will, I will be quiet because as a history professor, you know, we can talk about this stuff forever. <laughs> yeah, no, those are two, two great answers to our trivia questions. Woo. Very cool. Okay. So we like to wrap up our uh, hour every week with two questions that we ask every guest that we have on. So our first of those two questions is, why is it important that we study history? Yeah, so I mean, history history helps us understand how we got here, right? And, and I personally, I really fell in love with history because I appreciated first having a deeper understanding of our country's past. And I realized as I'm taking these college history classes, right, I'm seeing myself develop a better understanding of the present to see these connections. And, and I think this is a benefit that exists for everyone learning history, whether you are like me and you go and get a PhD or you just take one or two college history classes. Um, yeah. I think it's so important to understand our past to help us, right, understand how we got here um, and, and to better understand the world that we live in now. Absolutely. Yeah. So for our last question of the hour, what advice do you have for current and future students of history? Yeah, and this, oh, this is a good one. Um, I would say to take at least one or two or more if you can um, history classes if you're sort of a major or minor right take one or two classes that feel like they are completely outside your usual interests so mm -hmm. if you normally like u.s history take history of islam take history of africa um if you're normally into like the ancient and early modern world take a class on the cold war or the civil rights movement um Honestly, I found that taking classes and now that I'm, you know, beyond that point, right, reading yeah, books right. outside my specialty sometimes really gets me thinking the most as, mm. as a scholar um, and helps me see these connections, right, that I maybe did not necessarily see yeah. before. Um, so it's really sort of getting outside of your comfort zone. And, you know, one of, again, one of my most memorable classes in college was History of Islam. Oh, um, yeah. And again, I do, you know, U.S. history, right? Nothing related to that. Right. But that... I still think about themes and ideas from that class all the time. Because um, again, really what we do is just so deeply interconnected. 
Yeah, that's awesome advice. All right, so to close out this morning, we have some thank yous. First, thank you, of course, to Dr. Lowersdorf for joining us this morning. We really loved getting to have a great discussion with you. Thank you to the History Department and Dr. Schultz, who is our advisor for the History Club. Thank you to the College of Liberal Arts for their support and for, you know, being the, the reason why we're all here as uh, liberal arts majors and liberal arts uh, professors as our guests. Uh, thank you to our researcher, Colby, who helps us put together all of our questions every week. Thank you to Weagle for uh, giving us the opportunity to have a show, have a voice through the radio and podcast. Thank you to our listeners, because without you, we wouldn't be here. And we'll see you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Thursday at 8 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time. <laughs>